0: It's backed by a 30-day satisfaction guarantee, so if you're not absolutely in love, send it back for a full refund. No return shipping or restocking fees. Every penny back. Join the revolution of easy, clean, stylish living with up to 60% off at anabay.com. That's A-N-A-B-E-I dot com. Offers are subject to change, and certain restrictions may apply. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. 2024 Santa Fe, available early 2024.
1: Hello, you have found this episode here because we want to introduce you to our new series, The Estate, from Sonoro and Tenderfoot TV. My name is Alex Estrada, and this is the story of my family. The Estate is a true crime documentary podcast series about a burning question that has haunted me for the past 20 years was my father involved in the murder of his business partner. A murder mystery, political conspiracy, and family memoir touching on race, the justice system, and a pain that moves from one generation to the next. Listen to the first episode now. If you enjoy it, look for The Estate wherever you get your podcasts. In the early evening on New Year's Eve in 1973, a 34-year-old man was found bleeding to death on the street with multiple bullet wounds to his chest, stomach, and leg. He was rushed a mile north to St. Joseph's Hospital, but died hours later in surgery. This man was Anthony Virgilio, Tony to his friends. He was found in Fremont Square, a park in downtown Stockton which at the time was a busy place. Blocks away from the waterfront promenade, downtown was the heart of Stockton's business and entertainment. At rush hour, you'd often see people in suits, carrying briefcases, walking to work, in tall office buildings. But that night, Fremont Square was vacant. It was rainy, and offices and restaurants were closed. Nobody does business on New Year's Eve. Nobody except Tony Virgilio. According to Stockton police, in his dying moments, Tony told them that he had come downtown for a meeting with his former business partner, Calvin Jones. Calvin Jones would spend 30 years in prison for Tony's murder. And for 30 years, Calvin Jones would call my house and speak to my father. The phone would ring. My dad would walk into his room, shut the door, and talk to Calvin for hours. And I always wondered, what was happening in there? What were they talking about? What did my dad have to say to a convicted murderer? From Sonoro in Partnership with Tenderfoot TV, I'm Alex Estrada, and this is The Estate, I'll never forget giving the eulogy at my dad's funeral. The service took place at the Annunciation Cathedral. It's a big Gothic Catholic church on Rose Street in Stockton, California, just four blocks away from the house where I grew up. I'd been to this church before, but this was my first time in the front pew, which for this occasion was reserved for a close family the folks who were truly grieving. And that's where I was, along with my mom and my six siblings. My dad, Rosalio Estrada, Rosie to his friends, came from a huge Mexican family. So his brothers and sisters, their kids and grandkids all showed up. The place was packed. It was like a midnight mass in the middle of a summer day. I could feel myself sweating through my suit as I waited to go up to the pulpit. In true Estrada fashion, my dad wasn't even at his own funeral. His remains didn't get cremated on time. They arrived a week later and sat in my sister's Honda for six months after that. So there I was, giving the last words for a guy who wasn't even there. But I did my best to capture who he was. Dad called himself the Maestro, the Boss because that's what he considered himself, the conductor, the guy calling the shots, the one with a vision. And although the maestro is no longer with us, I concluded, he certainly left his mark on the world, his city, and his family. I made it back to the pew, trying to catch my breath between heaving sobs. I still have the eulogy, but when I read it now, it makes me cringe. Not because it was poorly written or badly delivered, but because I didn't really like my dad. I don't think he was a great person. Maybe not even a good person. I also don't know very much about his life. And it feels like those are two rules for giving a eulogy. You know the person, and you have good things to say about them. And what I didn't tell people, as I stood at the pulpit of that Gothic cathedral, looking out at everyone who had loved my father, was that for a long time, I had a sinking feeling that my dad had someone killed. When I was a kid... My parents taught me to answer the phone the same way most people learned. Phone rings, you pick it up, ask who's calling, then you take a message or you hand it to the person they want to talk to. Pretty simple stuff. But there was one phone call that we had to answer differently.
2: I have a collect call from... Calvin Jones. ...an inmate at a San Bernardino County detention facility.
1: When Calvin Jones called you were to take the phone straight to dad. Calvin called about once a month, sometimes once a week. My dad would always accept the charges and usually take the call in another room. One day, when I was about 10, I was walking up to the house and I heard the phone ringing. No one else was home. So I answered it. And it was Calvin Jones. I accepted the charges and talked to him. The call was short. I said, dad wasn't home, but that I'd let him know Calvin called. He thanked me and hung up. But by that time, the answering machine had already started recording and caught everything. That evening, my dad called me into the living room and played the message. And I got a sinking feeling in my stomach and the sense that I had messed up big time. Dad looked at me with cold eyes and then told me, in a low, stern voice, that if he wasn't home when Calvin called, I was to hang up. Do not talk to the man who was calling, he told me. My dad was an imposing guy, especially to me, a 10-year-old kid. He loomed over me and had a face like granite. He was born with a hair lip, and his nose was crooked from being broken a few times. Dad used to brag to me and my siblings about fights he had gotten into as a younger guy. I remember him telling me once that there was no greater satisfaction than the feeling of a guy's mouth collapsing when you hit him in the jaw. He had no qualms about being threatening or violent, even with his own kids. So I did what Dad told me, and that's the way it went for many years. But the calls never stopped. I still had questions. Who was Calvin Jones? How did he know my father? Why was he calling our house from prison? I didn't get any answers until I was 15. I asked my oldest sister, who is this guy who keeps calling? She gave me the clip notes. Calvin was dad's best friend. And before I was born, he and dad were put on trial for killing their business partner. Tony Virgilio, the man who was found in Fremont Square on New Year's Eve 1973. And Calvin was convicted. My dad, accused of murder. For 15-year-old me, this was the definition of an oh-shit moment. On the one hand, the idea of my father being a killer never occurred to me. Even with my complicated feelings towards him, it seemed impossible. But once the shock wore off, I thought, maybe it wasn't so crazy. Either way, I had to know more. So that night at dinner, I straight up asked my dad about the case. And he didn't seem entirely phased by the question. I mean, he probably figured that one day, his kids would want to know more about these strange phone calls from prison. So he took a breath, and talked for what felt like an hour. By the time he finished, my mom and siblings had cleared the plates from the table. There were no pauses, no room for questions, just the story of what he said happened. As dad explained it, he and Calvin were partners in a construction business with this guy, Tony, who died under mysterious circumstances. Calvin and my dad were the immediate suspects, but according to my dad, it had less to do with the evidence and more to do with what they represented to the powerful people in Stockton. Dad said the police had no evidence, except for an insurance policy, which he didn't want to begin with. There was no murder weapon, no eyewitnesses, no direct evidence tying him or Calvin to Tony's death. Calvin had been convicted by rumors. The whole thing was a racially motivated witch hunt. According to Dad, they were innocent. That night at dinner, I remember being spellbound. I came away both awestruck and afraid. In awe that something so insane could have happened to someone so close to me. And afraid because it felt, well, like my dad was dangerous. As an adult, I kept coming back to my dad's story and comparing it to what I knew about him. A guy who was violent. A guy who held grudges. A guy who kept secrets. Who stayed in bed until noon, didn't have a job, and drove junky cars. Honestly, he wasn't important enough to be framed for murder. So each time I thought back on his side of the story, I grew more suspicious. To the point where, for most of my life, I believed that he got away with murder. Which brings us back to the eulogy and this feeling that my dad was not a good guy, that the impression others had of him was a sham. And there I was in a church in front of everyone contributing to that lie. And although the maestro is no longer with us, he certainly left his mark on the world, his city, and his family. My dad died nearly a decade ago, but questions about the case have stuck with me. And at a certain point, I realized I needed to put my suspicions to rest along with my dad. And the only way I can do that is by getting to the truth of what happened on New Year's Eve 1973. Of course, that's daunting. I'm an attorney and a television writer. I've lived in New York City for the past two decades and haven't spent much time in Stockton since my parents died. So when it came to piecing together my dad's part in a 50-year-old homicide, I had no idea where to begin. So I hired a journalist, Angelina Mosher Salazar, an investigative reporter with experience in podcasting and roots in Stockton, just like me. I needed someone to track down the people involved in my dad's case. And Angelina had a knack for that.
0: All right, so right now, what I have from you is Randy, of course, Calvin, Calvin's lawyer, Brian, Calvin's son, Francesca.
1: For months, we met through Zoom and talked about my dad's story, about the key players and where to find them. After a couple of weeks, we were ready to start interviewing. We decided to meet at the place where this all started, my hometown. So in the middle of summer, I packed my bags, and left the comfort of my Brooklyn apartment for my sister's spare bedroom in Northern California, where she lives with her dog, Scrappy, who I found out the hard way was not supposed to go outside.
2: Hello.
3: Good morning. How's it going?
2: You know the dog, you know
0: Shadow. Hi, sweetie. Scrappy. Is that bad, that Scrappy ran out? Not good.
2: Okay,
0: you go get Scrappy. I'll hold back Shadow.
1: Don't worry. Scrappy was safely recovered though he did bite me when I caught him. We started by laying out everything I knew about the case, which wasn't much. So we turned to my siblings. Surely one of them would know something about Dad's involvement in this whole mess.
0: There's just, like, this shroud of mystery over, like, Dad and his dealings and, like, even what he did every day, you know? But his trial... We were very sheltered. We never talked to him really about it.
2: It's been this thing that's been like
1: hanging over our family for a long time in a sort of weird way. Not much to go on there either. Clearly, Dad wasn't an open book with any of us. And even though no one in the family had information to go on, they all agreed on the one person who would. The man at the center of this story the voice on the other end of those calls from prison, Calvin Jones. So we went to see him.
0: This is exciting. I love being in the field. Do? I love it. There's like nothing that gives me more joy than being in the field.
1: Did I have the same level of enthusiasm to be investigating a murder in my hometown in the middle of a heat wave in August? Get me the fuck out of this county. The answer is no. But if this is what it takes to get answers about my dad and his past, what choice did I have? Calvin Jones lives in South Stockton, not far from where he and my dad opened their first door. The sun is baking the sidewalk as we step out of the car towards an adobe house behind a chain link fence.
4: Well, hello there. Hello.
1: We sat down to talk to the man who served 30 years in prison for a crime he says he didn't do, but whose answers left us wanting more. Who is Calvin Jones, and what's his side of the story?
3: That's after the break. Your tax refund belongs to you, not an identity thief.
2: 2025 QX80 coming this summer.
1: For the last 20 years, I've thought about Calvin Jones, the man who called my house regularly from prison, my father's best friend and former business partner, and a man who says he spent 30 years behind bars for a crime he didn't commit. Growing up, I always wanted to learn more about the case and what had happened before I was born. But as I mentioned before, my dad and I had a pretty strained relationship. I carried a lot of resentment when I left Stockton, and it never really let up. From then on, my dad and I rarely talked, except for holidays, birthdays, that kind of thing. And then he died, which didn't exactly do wonders for our communication. My dad died in 2012, one year before Calvin was released from prison. When I heard he was out, I was shocked. He had been given a life sentence. But this opened a door. I had always hoped that one day, Calvin and I would talk about the story. Have a real conversation, man to man, about what happened that night. But I put it off. For years. And to be honest, I was scared. I was scared to know the answer. Scared of what it would bring up in me. But time was slipping away. Dad was gone. If I waited any longer, I could lose Calvin too. Talking to Calvin was my only chance at figuring out what happened between him, Dad, and Tony almost 50 years ago. Had Dad been part of a murder plot or the victim of an unjust system? So that's what brings me and Angelina to Calvin's house. The first thing I notice about Calvin is that he's tall, at least six foot three. He's dressed comfortably in a sweatshirt and jeans. Calvin is pushing 80, but he doesn't give the impression of a guy slowing down. I shake his hand, and it's strong. Despite his large stature, his demeanor is gentle, grandfatherly, and his voice is soft, almost zen like. We move into the dining room, and the interview begins with Calvin telling us about how he met my dad in the late 1960s. At the time, both of them were in their mid-20s. They had started families and were working sort of dead-end jobs. Calvin at the county housing authority and dad at an army depot just outside of town. They found each other through their interest in politics and local activism.
4: That's when we started picketing. Because we used to go picket farmers out here with Cesar Chavez, Dolores Huerta. Me and Rosie, we marched and all those kind of things.
1: You heard that right. Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta, two people at the forefront of California's labor rights movement. Calvin and Rosie were movers and shakers wanting to make a big change for their community, but they also wanted to make money, lots of it.
4: Our desire was to be the richest black and brown In this valley, that was one of our, you know, I mean, that was one of our goals, to achieve something that other brown and blacks could actually see being done. And it's because we were the only one doing things at that time.
1: From what Calvin tells me, he and my dad wanted to upset the city's power dynamics. So in the early 1970s, they decided to become business partners. With a loan from the Small Business Administration, they started off with liquor stores. They opened their first one in 1971. Within a year, they opened another location, with plans for a third store. And from there, they decide to go into construction, which is where they would meet Tony Virgilio, the man Calvin was convicted of murdering.
4: Uh, I met Tony Virgilio from some other people that were in the construction business. And Through his reputation as a worker. That's how he came about. That's how we got started.
1: Calvin says Tony brought construction experience to the table. But more importantly, he brought a contractor's license, which they needed to operate the construction business. With Tony's skills, Calvin's business sense, and my dad's brain, they were ready to take over Stockton. They had big plans to change the face of the city and make a place for themselves at the head of the table. Calvin and my dad were young and cocky, and they weren't going to take shit from anyone. And Calvin says, that rubbed Stockton's white establishment the wrong way.
4: Well, you got to understand, during that time, no other blacks and browns would stand up to these people and say things to them. People say we was too uppity, high up, we was out of order.
1: I should mention here that in the 1970s, Stockton's business class was overwhelmingly white. My dad being Mexican and Calvin being black, they would have stuck out like sore thumbs. And they weren't shy about letting everybody know they wanted to run things. Their ambition brought them together as friends.
4: We didn't feel it was nothing that we couldn't do. Period. I mean, if they were doing it, we could do it. And better. As we talk... I notice
1: how every time Calvin mentions my dad, he gets somber. I get the sense that he's saying things that he never could have told my dad in person.
4: Well, he was honest and loyal, and he was a person that cared about humanity, I would say. You know, he cared about people, cared about situations. That's what I admired about
1: it. Sitting in Calvin's dining room, Hearing him talk about my dad this way, I feel embarrassed because my experience was almost totally opposite. I think if I felt half of what Calvin told me was true about my dad being an honest, loyal man who cared about humanity, I might not have questioned whether my dad was guilty of murder. I also wonder how one person can be so drastically different to two people. As Calvin spoke, I felt like I was internally fact-checking him.
4: He was a person that loves his family. Debatable. He loved his kids. Doubtful. He loved politics. Okay, that one I can agree with. But the conclusion from all this? He was just basically
1: a good person. Now that I couldn't get behind. It's obvious at this point that he and I experienced Rosalio Estrada in vastly different
2: ways.
1: Calvin sees Rosie as the loyal best friend and savvy business partner. I see him as an abusive and violent man whose selfishness hurt his wife and kids. Is it possible that my dad was hiding his true self from Calvin? That he hid those darker aspects of his personality from his best friend? Maybe Calvin only speaks to the good in Rosie because that's what Rosie showed him. My dad could be charismatic, But it's also possible that Calvin isn't telling me the truth about my father and knows it. Maybe he doesn't want to speak ill of the dead. Or maybe he thinks revealing the truth would taint his innocence. And another thought. If they were such good friends, why did my dad keep Calvin a secret from us? Calvin's explanation was simple. The murder trial destroyed my dad.
4: I think a lot of that probably came from the fact that his whole persona his whole desires was killed off when he got charged his whole demeanor changed I seen a, a big change in him because when you out and you have notoriety from the community that you're working in the community and doing all this stuff in the community and he did want to be a big time builder you know he had aspirations of doing a lot of good stuff that stopped all that just the charges itself stops that people got afraid of him who used to be his so called friend but they once you get charged everything changed bankers stop dealing with you but before that I never seen that part of him before all this happened. Now he might have had it pinned up in him but I doubt it because we're together a lot. I mean, that makes a big difference in a person's life.
1: What Calvin is saying here gave me pause. I had this hunch that my dad was involved in a murder. That he was guilty of the crime as charged. I thought that because of the dad I knew. The one I grew up with a man who was quick to anger and violence. But now the person who spent 30 years in prison for the crime is saying no. They were both innocent. And the fact that my dad had to live knowing his best friend went away for a crime he didn't commit, that destroyed him. It took away his goals, his dreams, his reputation, and his best friend. Is it possible that the man I knew was depressed and angry because of a wrongful conviction? for being the victim of a political conspiracy. I tell Calvin my truth, that for the majority of my life, I didn't believe my dad's story. I thought my dad was guilty. I only had access to the case through my interactions with him uh, that weren't positive. Like, my sense was that he had been involved. I felt that he had orchestrated or been part of a plan uh, to kill Tony Virgilio. The things I experienced and saw, my feeling was that he was a person capable of killing someone else and killing someone else for money.
4: No, I don't think he had a lot of love for Tony Virgilio. But as far as him planning to have him kill, no.
1: Calvin is unfazed. He is unwavering in his and my dad's innocence. My father had a saying that he would repeat to me and my siblings. Protect yourself at all times. It's the advice referees give to boxers at the beginning of every fight. Be alert. Keep your guard up. Don't open yourself up to getting hurt. I must have heard those words 10,000 times growing up and I repeat them to myself still, even today. So I thought to myself, would I be making a mistake in trusting Calvin's version? By accepting this view of my dad as an honest and loyal person, was I opening myself up to getting hurt? If Calvin and my dad maintained their innocence, exactly how did they end up being charged for the murder? What was the actual evidence against them? how is it that dad went home and Calvin went to jail? For that, we needed the police reports, the facts of what happened. And though Calvin himself didn't offer up a ton of new information about the case, he did give us something we hadn't seen yet.
4: If you wanna go through a whole lot of police reports. I mean, that would be a lot of fun.
1: Actually, if there's a time that works. You
4: can take them with you. Where are right they? That stacked right there. Sitting on the <laughs> floor. Sitting on the floor over here? Oh my God. <laughs>
1: yeah, I think we can, we can take them with us. I, you know, I don't have anything, well, I have work, but other than that, um, yeah, sure, I'd love to. Do you have like a, do you have like a little box or something that I can take them out? Like, you know, a shoebox or a bag or something even. I just want to keep them all together. We packed hundreds of documents into a plastic box, sealed the lid and said our goodbyes to Calvin. Ooh. Man, All right, well, I walked away with a big pile of documents. That's always fun. I honestly was like, maybe the most exciting part is getting these, in a way. Um, you yeah, know, just having more stuff to sort of pour through. Things that I haven't read before. When a parent dies, they always leave something behind to their kids. Often, it's money, a house, or some kind of heirloom. Sometimes, it's bills or debts. Other times, it's just a body. Literally, their remains. But when my dad died, he left behind a question. Was he responsible for killing Tony Virgilio? The box of documents we got from Calvin seemed like the best place to start. I began pouring through volumes of police reports and court transcripts and stumbled upon the first big discovery of our investigation, the last words of Tony Virgilio, who, in his dying moments, named the men behind his murder, Calvin Jones and Rosalio Estrada. But that's next time on The Estate. The Estate was produced by Sonoro in partnership with Tinderfoot TV. Hosted by me, Alex Estrada and Angelina Mosier Salazar. Reported by Angelina Mosier Salazar. Investigated by Angelina Mosier Salazar, Alex Estrada and Evelyn Uribe. Written by Angelina Mosier Salazar and Alex Estrada. With help from Evelyn Uribe and Carlos Arenado. Edited by Ross Terrell and Jasmine Romero. Fact check by Sarah Moda and Evelyn Uribe. Mix and sound design by Manuel Parra and Daniel Padilla. Engineering by Josh Hahn, Sam Baer, and Brett Tubin at the Relic Room in New York City. Original music by Ernesto Aguirre. Our theme song is by Marcus Bagala. Executive produced by Alex Estrada. From Sonoro, executive producers are Joshua Weinstein and Camila Victoriano. From Tenderfoot TV, executive producers are Donald Albright and Payne Lindsay. Special thanks to Lisa Pollack, Sarah Boannon, Christian Yatar, Rodrigo Crespo, Carmen Graterol, and Adriana Broger.